Mark chapter 10, verses 32 and following. This will be the last installment in the True Discipleship series of sermons. I want to say a couple of things about that before we sort of put a bow on things this morning. I want to be careful to note that although we have been talking now for eight weeks about true discipleship, what that looks like, Jesus defining the terms of discipleship for us, that what, our, what we did not set out to do and what we have not done is given you a comprehensive explanation of what true discipleship looks like. In other words, although we have talked about critical aspects of discipleship, we have not talked about every aspect of discipleship. In fact, we've not talked about one of the most elementary aspects of discipleship, which is making disciples. The primary responsibility of the true disciple is to make disciples. Now, it's assumed in Mark 8 through 10 that we understand that. And it's assumed because it's laid out for us in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 1:15, Jesus gives the first recorded presentation of the Gospel in the New Testament. He says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then at the close of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 16, Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. Teach them to observe what I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the bookends of the Gospel of Mark are the Gospel and the commission that every true disciple would go and share the good news of the Gospel. Now here in this middle section, and remember, this is in the, the lead-up to Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the, the last stretch of Jesus' earthly ministry. He is investing in the disciples the knowledge of some essential aspects of true discipleship. In other words, what I understand Jesus to be doing here is saying to the disciples, if you want to be effective bearers of the good news message, if you want to be effective in the Great Commission, these are some aspects of true discipleship that simply cannot be neglected. If you want to have credibility, if you want to walk as I have walked, if you want to serve as I have served, if you want to be effective and efficient in your effort, efforts to fulfill the Great Commission, these are things that simply cannot be overlooked. Again, not everything about discipleship is covered here, but some very important parts. And what Jesus seems to choose to focus on are those aspects of discipleship that we tend to get all weird about or that we misunderstand. Every time Jesus comes back to the gospel, the prediction of his death and resurrection, the disciples prove that they have not yet fully understood what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, and further clarification is given for us. So we'll work through the last part of this passage and talk about what I think is, is really the most important part of this whole section, the most important principle that we will have observed when our time together this morning is, is done and, uh, and I trust that it will be and, and has been helpful for you over the past few weeks. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse number 32. If you found your way there in your copy of God's Word, let's stand together out of respect and honor for its reading. Here the Bible says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. 
Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. And they answered in verse 37, Allow us to sit at your right hand and your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We're able, they told him. And Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high position exercise power over them. But it mustn't be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Many people told him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage. Get up. He's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man told him, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus said, Go your way. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he could see and began to follow him on the road. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Here's the first thing I want to say to you. And what I suspect you're probably already aware of on some level. True discipleship is difficult. It is hard to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not certain that the disciples fully understand just how difficult it is. This is now the third time that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. He said, I'm, I'm going to die. And then again, he said, I'm going to die and be raised again. And now for the third time within this section, Jesus says, listen, listen up. This is, this is your final admonition. I am going to Jerusalem, we are going to Jerusalem, and when arriving there, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be spat upon, I'm going to be mocked, and ultimately I'm going to be killed, but the glory is I'm going to rise after three days. Now, they didn't seem to grasp what it meant that he was going to be mocked, spat upon, and killed. They certainly didn't understand what Jesus intended by being raised after three days. And each time that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, 
one or more of the disciples speak, and they make it abundantly clear that they do not understand what Jesus says. They see a little, but they don't have a clear picture of what Jesus intends by this. Now, if the disciples can miss it, and they all miss it, the inner circle and the whole group in our text, if they can miss it, it's clear to us, or at least it should be, that we stand a pretty high chance of missing certain aspects of the high call of the gospel on our life. Jesus says, here we go. Now, interestingly, every time the disciples speak to prove their ignorance, they always speak about the issue of greatness or preeminence, or power, or first place. Every time Jesus says, I'm going to die and be raised again, one of the disciples says, by the way, can I be in charge? Or they're having a conversation about who is the greatest among them, proving every time that they have no understanding whatsoever of of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about being out first. Jesus says it's about being last, a servant of all. Now here in verses 35 and following, uh, James and John make this request. And, And Jesus helps them at least a little to understand that discipleship, that greatness in his kingdom is is not really what they think it is. The the very idea that Jesus would say, I'm going to die, it sort of shatters their idea of what he was going to provide for them. Their idea, again, is a military, earthly king kind of leader who's going to throw off Roman oppression, who's going to purge the land of all their enemies, who's going to do away with all of the problems and issues in their life and make things prosperous and free and great for all Jews in Palestine. That's their idea of what Jesus is going to do for them. Now, he can't do that if he dies. So it completely explodes their idea. It seems to me that what they're doing is they're interpreting Jesus figuratively. They say, he says he's going to be killed, he's going to be spat upon, he's going to be flogged, all these things. Yeah, yeah, he means that in some sort of mysterious parable type of way. We're going to sort of press through. That's what we do when Jesus says things we don't like. Like when we read things in the Bible where Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up the cross. We make the cross into more domesticated things like bad Mondays and tax day and things like that. Those are the crosses that we bear, even our diagnosis. But, but we, we, we read or interpret the Bible in ways that are less offensive to us often. James and John and the other disciples seem to be interpreting Jesus in a way that best suits their understanding of what they expect him to do for them. That Jesus would come and scratch all of our itches. He would come and meet all of our expectations. All of our ambitions would come true. We can be anything that we want to be because Jesus is Lord of our life and he's going to give us the desires of our heart. See, there's enough truth in those kinds of statements to be very, very dangerous. He does give us the desires of our heart, but he turns our desires away from the things of this world to the things of heaven. What Jesus was going to do was so much greater than what they had expected, but they did not for the time being have the eyes to see what the plan of God would look like for them and ultimately for the world. James and John say, we want to ask you something, but we'd like a commitment on the front end. They say in verse 36, Uh, Verse 35, rather, teacher, would you do something for us if we ask you? This is how my kids make requests. Dad, if I ask you to do something, would you let me do it? They want the commitment on the front end, you know. You you buy in, you sell, you buy the commitment, and and then they ask what they want to do, which they usually know is something that's not permissible or they would have asked it differently. 
We want to ask you something, Jesus, but we'd like a commitment on the front end. And Jesus said, what do you want? And they said, here's what we'd like. When you come in the glory of your kingdom. See, they're not, we, we hear already glory, kingdom. We're hearing that in heavenly terms, but that's not what James and John intend. In other words, when we get to Jerusalem and you, and you overthrow the religious establishment and you run the Romans out of town, can one of us be on the right hand and one of us be on the left? Can we have a position of greatness when we get there? And Jesus says in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Are you able to drink the cup of God's wrath against sinful man? Are you able to be baptized with the death of the cross? James and John say, oh yeah, yeah, we can do that. We're ready. Sign us up. And Jesus says in verse 39, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. He's foretelling the martyr's death that James and John would die. You will, in a lesser way, be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, and you will, in a lesser way, drink the bitter cup of judgment that's coming against me but not to the same degree. And the positions of authority, right and left, that you've asked for, they have been predetermined in eternity. James and John, you have asked for something not realizing what you've asked for. And unfortunately for you, you're going to get what you ask for, although you never imagined what it would look like. James and John, your, your position of greatness is, is not going to come by your being catapulted to the right hand and left hand of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords through some blaze of glory and victory in the here and now. You're going to die in, glori in glorious deaths, sharing the good news of a kingdom that has come, a kingdom that will come, a king that's ruled over and reigned over by Jesus Christ. See, they want something earthly, Jesus says, you're going to get something that's going to be heavenly, but the way to get there is not what you'd envisioned or, ima or imagined. It's going to be very difficult for you, James and John. Like, well, we understand this morning, right, that James and John were not Bible heroes in their lifetime. Like we're, we're sitting around and talking about James and John, their impact on the kingdom, because they were baptized with the baptism Jesus was baptized with, because they did drink the bitter cup that Jesus drank on our behalf, because they suffered the martyr's death for the cause of the kingdom, advancing the kingdom here on earth. That's why we're talking about James and John here. There was no glory in the here and now for James and John. There is usually no glory in the here and now for those who expend their lives for the advancement of the kingdom. Being a disciple is difficult. It usually means suffering. If you're a note taker, that's item number A under point number one. The difficulty here is, is it requires suffering. Here, James and John are going to be baptized. They're going to drink the bitter cup. They're going to be faced with hardship. Now, again, this is where we do the thing that we do, where we reinterpret what Jesus has said to accommodate our convictions and the comforts that we enjoy in the here and now. Now, the reality is that most of the people who are gathered here this morning will not die the martyr's death. 
It's an unusual thing in our culture to hear of someone who dies for their faith in Jesus Christ. But it is a universal thing that every true disciple of Jesus under the sound of my voice and elsewhere will over the course of their life faithfully following Jesus suffer persecution for their faith. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And and he's not talking about the modest forms of persecution that we like to celebrate here in our culture. He's talking about real persecution. In fact, I would suggest to you that the absence of that in our life is probably an indication that we aren't the true disciples we've convinced ourselves we are. True discipleship uh, requires suffering. It requires sacrifice. They're going to have to lay their earthly ambitions down that the kingdom would be advanced. Jesus calls us away from our sin, yes, but so often he calls us away from our worldly ways of thinking. We we, we have our cap set for these earthly things, and Jesus calls us to lay them down. Let me tell you what makes all this bearable. What makes this bearable for us is what awaits us in glory. It's only what's on the other side that makes bearable what we are to experience in the here and now as true disciples of Jesus Christ. We we are a people called upon to suffer. We are a people called upon to make sacrifices. We are a people called upon to live selflessly in the world around us. But we count it all joy. We count it all joy because of what awaits us in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that the sufferings of the present age aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus? But listen, until your worldview changes, until you cease living for 65 Social Security and 401Ks, before you cease striving to live the American dream, you you cannot live as a true disciple. You're going to lay those things aside. You're always going to have the baggage. You're always going to be encumbered by your want for stuff in the here and now and never truly be able to sell yourself out for kingdom advancement, faithfully following Jesus in all things. In all likelihood, you will not live the American dream as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. But there will come a day When received into the presence of your Savior, you hear the declaration, Well done, my good and faithful servant, when you'll have counted it all joy, the meager loss ever suffered in the here and now. It's hard to be a true disciple of Jesus. It's difficult. Secondly, true discipleship is serving. Now, There's a fair amount of repetition in our passage this morning, meaning we've already covered some of the material. Jesus restates so much of what has been stated elsewhere in this section. And sometimes hearers struggle with repetition. They get bored. And sometimes preachers get anxious about repetition. But I've landed at the comfortable position that if Jesus says it more than one time, it must mean it's pretty important. It's worth our discussing at least momentarily once again. In verse 42, Jesus sort of straightens everyone out. Now, the first prediction of Jesus' death, it was Peter that acted foolishly and said, let me tell you how we don't need to do it this way. And then in the second prediction of Jesus' death, it was, 
It was John who acted foolishly. And now in the third, it was John, uh, James first, but John joined in. But just to make sure that everyone's on equal footing here when it comes to the disciples, verse 41 tells us that when the other ten disciples heard about what James and John did, they began to be indignant with James and John. In other words, they were jealous that James and John sought a sidebar with Jesus to be on the left and the right. They're pushing ahead. In, in other words, what Mark is indicating for us here is that it wasn't just James and John who wanted positions of authority in this earthly kingdom. It was all 12 disciples. In verse 42, Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it mustn't be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. True discipleship is serving. And this service, as we've observed in a previous text, is a countercultural kind of service. It's a service that's different than service rendered in the world. Jesus uses that as an illustration in our text. He said, you know how the Gentiles lord it over those under their authority when they have positions of authority. But it shouldn't be like that. In fact, he says, it must not be like that among you. Being a Christian leader is not about domineering over those given under your charge. Jesus says it mustn't be that way. It cannot be that way. It is not that way. Jesus says in the kingdom, if you want to be great, you must be a servant and servant to all. This is this kingdom economy thing. And you'll hear me say this a million times. The way up is down. The way to exaltation is humiliation. The way forward is back. The way to be first is to be last in the kingdom. It's completely upside down from what we experience in the world. If you want to be great, don't be great like the Gentiles who beat their chest and lord their authority over their subjects. You be last of all and servant of all. And in doing so, you'll have achieved greatness in the kingdom of God. Now, I want, to, I want to note here that, that what Jesus is describing is a completely countercultural thing. It's, it's a theme that is repeated throughout the teachings of Jesus and throughout the New Testament. A want and willingness to be a servant of all and last of all. If I could couch this principle in, in these terms, I think this is a good way of communicating, at least in part, what Jesus is stating here. And I want you to be careful that you hear what I do say and careful that you hear what I do not say. The kind of service that Jesus describes here in our passage, it's, it's, it's not about going on mission trips. It's about living on mission. Everything that we do, this is not just a part of what we do during certain periods of the year. It's not something that we do on our best days. We're not servant-minded when we feel like it. It's in our DNA as true disciples of Jesus Christ to be servant of all and last of all. Now listen, I want you to go on every mission trip that we make available to you as a church. But I want you to go there so that you can be saturated in missional thinking and missional activity. So that you're able to see the gospel at work in another culture. So you're able to sort through what your faith in the gospel is about American gospel and what's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then come back with the fire of missions burning in your heart. And we want to stoke that flame and set you loose in DeSoto County. But, but as Christian people, we don't relegate our service to a week or two weeks in the summer 
We are last of all and servant of all, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's not something that we do. It must be who we are if we are to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. This is a service unlike other service rendered in the world around us. It's a countercultural service. It's a costly service. In verse 44, Jesus says, if you want to be first among uh, whoever you want to be, if you want to be first, you must be slave to all. You're going you're gonna to have to give up some things. You're going to have to make some sacrifices in your life if you're going to be this kind of, of servant. There are going to be times when there, there are things that you'd rather do. You'll never, you'll never regret letting them go. On the other end, there's joy and gladness that you did what you maybe didn't want to do on the front end. There's something to the discipline of doing what you don't want to do, by the way, when you know you ought to do it. We've got this weird view of hypocrisy where I've had people say things to me like, well, I was going to come to church, preacher, but I didn't feel like it. And I knew if I didn't feel like it, I'd come, I'd be a hypocrite, so I didn't come. That's just crazy reasoning to me. But people think in those terms. Like, I didn't want to share the gospel, and I know if I did, then I wouldn't want to, and my heart wouldn't be in it, so I didn't want to be a hypocrite. That's just crazy. There's, when God commands that you do something, put this in even earthly terms. If I tell my children to clean their room, I don't really care if they want to do it or not. I just want them to do it. And I want them to do it to build in themselves the discipline of doing that and the expectation of living in an environment made healthy and habitable by the practice of doing that and to see on the other end the fruit of that reward. As, as laborious as it may feel for them in the process, on the other end, they're glad they've got a clean room. There are times when you're going to have to set aside things that you may have a desire to do or a want for in order to do what God has clearly charged you to do. And I fully expect, in fact, money-back guarantee, on the other side of your act of service, there will be a gladness that you have been faithful to do what God has charged you with doing. It's costly. It's costly. I think we need to be careful when we talk to people about the gospel that we set forth the cost. But we, we, we don't do that to the neglect of discussing the glory that awaits us. The suffering is made bearable by the promise of health and wholeness and life everlasting. The high cost, the sacrifice of service is made bearable by the notion that we are laying up treasures not where moth and rust can destroy, but in heaven before the presence of our King Jesus. This service is countercultural. It's costly and it's a service that follows the pattern set by Jesus and we said this weeks ago when we discussed servanthood and true discipleship but here Jesus says it himself he says in verse 45 even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many Jesus's life was more than an example Jesus came and died vicariously. That is, he died in our place. His death has benefits for every person who believes and trusts in his name. That's what makes his sacrificial death different and better than any other sacrificial death. He was more than an example, but he was certainly not less. Here Jesus says, follow my pattern. Do as I do. Even the Son of Man, and listen, if there were ever one who had reason to come and be served, it was Jesus. In fact, it is, it's a little crazy that God would come and serve. 
This is all upside down. This is all God comes to be served. But Jesus came in the greatest act of humility that history has ever known and bowed and served. Jesus came not to take the throne and the crown, but the towel and the basin. And he says, follow after me. Model your life after me. That even when you have a reasonable expectation to authority, when yours is the crown and the throne, choose rather to take the towel and the basin and be a servant to all, even unto your very death. Service, the service that Jesus calls us to, is patterned after Jesus' own life. See, what he meant in Mark 8, 34, when he said, take up the cross and follow after me, is made clearer here, that what I'm asking you to do is to give up your life in service to King Jesus. That's what he called upon us to do. Boldly confessing that Jesus is Lord to march headlong into grave danger, even into the prospect of death, that the kingdom might be advanced. That was the call of Jesus. And yet we shrink back at the mere possibility of a moment of awkwardness or rejection. I'm telling you, listen, what Jesus is calling us to is a much higher charge than we are often willing to confess. It was more than James and John could bear, at least more than what they could understand for the time being. Peter missed it. John missed it. All of the disciples miss it. And there are untold millions of followers of Jesus Christ who have yet to come to terms with the fullness of what it means to take up the cross and to follow after him. True discipleship is difficult. It is serving. Here's the third thing, and this is so critically important. In, in fact, without this, there is no discipleship. Y'all ready? True discipleship is supernatural. I want you to look. I'll tell you what I mean. Look at verse 46. They came to Jericho. And as, he was, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Now, sort of set the scene a little bit. You remember Jericho from your uh, vacation Bible schools? Jericho's the city that Joshua led the army of Israel to march around, and the walls came tumbling down. And when the walls came tumbling down, Joshua made a declaration against the city that whoever rebuilt the city would do so at the cost of their eldest and their youngest son. And the rebuilder of that city ultimately lost their eldest and their youngest son in the process of doing so. It was a cursed city. Bartimaeus was a blind man. According to the custom of the day, he was a man who lived from birth under the curse of blindness. And he's begging. Culturally, socially, he's in an unacceptable, cursed position. A cursed man in a cursed place with a cursed condition. And here comes Jesus passing by. And he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped in verse 49 and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus said, Rabbani, which means my teacher, I want to see. 
Jesus told him, go your way. Your faith has healed you. And then Mark uses his favorite word, immediately, immediately he could see and began to follow him on the road. Now, I want you to turn back for just a moment to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and verse number 22. Here the Bible says, they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look to me like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hand on the man's eyes and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, this section that we've looked at, it's, it's, book, it's bookended by the healing of two blind men. An unnamed blind man in Mark 8 and Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. That's a, that's a way that's often used. It's a literary device that's often used in the Bible to mark the beginning and end of a section. Two stories that, that parallel one another. They're both historically accurate, inerrant, inspired by God, but it's a way of marking off by biblical writers that this is a neat, compact section of Scripture that usually contains one primary message that is served by all of the lesser paragraphs within that particular passage. Now, in Mark chapter 8, this blind man is healed by Jesus, spitting on his eyes, and then Jesus says, what do you see? And he says, I see, I see men, and they look like trees. In other words, I see, but I see as through a veil dimly. I'm getting a part of the picture, but my vision is not yet clear. And Jesus touches him again, and ultimately he's able to see distinctly. Now, that becomes the paradigm for the disciples' behavior in the next two chapters. They see some things. There's a level of understanding enjoyed by the disciples, but they don't have a good, clear, crisp picture of what it is that Jesus is saying. Now we come to blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus touches Bartimaeus, and immediately the Bible says he was healed. Go your way. Your faith has healed you. There are a couple lessons to be learned there when it comes to discipleship. For some of us, things can come rather quickly. In fact, some things come immediately. In my own experience, when I came to faith in Jesus, there were things about my life that were transformed in an instant. At 2.34, I was a different person than I was at 2.36 when God saved my soul. Some things come very quickly. But oh boy, there are some things that come rather slowly. There are things that happen immediately. And there are changes that come progressively through the work of the Spirit. And they're different with different people. There may be things that you struggle with and, 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 and God changes them very slowly. It may be different in the case of someone else very quickly. God may work through by the power of his spirit that particular issue or struggle in the life. But both of these healings from blindness have one very important thing in common. They are both sparked by a touch from the supernatural son of God. Y'all with me? I don't know if you're understanding the power of that statement. When I was saved, I came into a church culture that was coming to terms with the lack of health 
in the church growth and seeker-sensitive movement of yesteryear. There was a wrestling with the reality that what we have been doing has been creating a version of Christianity that is an inch deep and a mile wide. And it doesn't work. One, it doesn't grow the church spiritually, even when it grows the church numerically. And we're not convinced at all that it's left the people any better off in the end spiritually than they were in the beginning. In fact, they may be worse off in the end than in the beginning. So there was a lot of emphasis, a lot of discussion in my peer group about accountability partnerships and personal spiritual disciplines, Bible reading plans and praying at set times of the day and various other mechanisms that were to be employed in our life to help us to grow in grace and understanding of who God was and what he required of us to do and and to improve upon personal holiness in our life. Now listen to me very carefully again, hear what I say and not what I don't say. All of those things that I've just described are important parts of the Christian life. You need those mechanisms in your life to help you to pursue personal holiness. But those mechanisms, those disciplines are no replacement for the work of the Spirit of God in your life. Our very confession is that we need Jesus to do something in us and for us that we cannot do for ourselves. You cannot fix your problems. You come to Christ and you lay them at the cross and God begins the work of redemption and restoration and reconciliation in our life. Ultimately, through the disciplines, through determination, through our own self-will, the Spirit of God is working in us to shape us and mold us and make us to be who He would have for us to be. No amount of self-determination or discipline can replace the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in your life. The Spirit is the great maker of disciples, and we mustn't ever forget that. The presence of the Spirit in the disciplines is the difference between a healthy faith walk with Jesus and a cold, callous religion. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. Now, the discussion tends to be We've not done a good job historically, I'm not speaking of our church specifically, but church in general. We've not done a good job of making disciples. We tell them about the gospel, they're converted, or whatever language is used there, and then, and then we don't follow up or follow through. And, and, and listen, I got all of that. You, we've, got, we've got to do that. You've got to train people. You've got to encourage people to share the gospel. You've got to teach them how to study their Bible and to spend dedicated time in prayer. But, but I'm telling you, where, where the Spirit of God gets into the heart of man, the promise of our Savior is that he will perfect the work begun in their heart. You cannot replace the work of the Spirit. Now let me encourage you a little further. This is an encouragement with a blade. The faith that saves you from your sin will sanctify you from that sin also. In other words, if you have savingly believed that faith will have a sanctifying effect in your life from that moment forward. Y'all with me? Are y'all really with me? Or are you just nodding because it's getting close to time? The faith that saves will sanctify you. 
and the brokenness that many people experience in their efforts at discipleship is not the result of their failed methods or mechanisms as I've described them. It is the product of the absence of the Spirit of God in their life. Y'all with me? I'm concerned, deeply concerned, and burdened at at the prevalence of unsaved believers in in the Bible Belt. In John 2, which is to me one of the scariest passages in the Bible, the Bible says that Jesus did many miracles in the city of Jerusalem, and there were many who believed in his name. But because he knew what was in their heart, he did not entrust himself to them. They saw the miracles. They saw something in Jesus that they wanted. They saw something in Jesus that appealed to them. But because because he knew what was in their heart, he did not entrust himself to them. There there is a degree of faith. There, There is a faith that cannot save, that does not save. Jesus resolves this challenge. In fact, that's stated in John chapter 2. In John chapter 3, and all of these passages work together, Jesus says, God so loved the world that gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. A passage that says that if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. A passage here that says someone believed, but because he knew what was in their heart, they were not saved. The answer to that contrast, that conflict, is found in the middle in John 3 and 2, where Jesus said, if a man wants to see the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again. What Jesus says is that you need the supernatural touch of the Savior in order to be a true disciple. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. What you need this morning as a sinner apart from God is not to be a member of the church. It's not to be baptized. It's not to exercise spiritual disciplines. What you need is to be born again. And all of these matters flow forth from that. John Wesley famously preached a tent meeting during the height of the awakening. And he showed up on the first night and he preached the sermon titled, You Must Be Born Again. And he showed up on night two and he preached the sermon titled, You Must Be Born Again. And Wesley showed up on night three and he preached the sermon titled, You Must Be Born Again. And finally, the bishop, a little frustrated with Wesley's repetition, approached him after the service and said, Mr. Wesley, why is it that each night you bring the message, you must be born again. And Wesley said, because, Bishop, you must be born again. Brothers and sisters, hear me, hear me, hear me. What we need of God is something we cannot do for ourselves. True discipleship begins by the supernatural touch of the Savior. You must be born again.